You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's Subscription Fly Box. Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly time materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, John? Hey, good, Dave. It's great to be back. I love uh, love your show. So it's an honor that uh, that I'm here. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I think um, you've got some amazing stuff going as well. We're going to talk about what you have going with your podcasts and everything there. Um, we get a lot of questions about, uh, you know, not only preparing food, things like that, but I mean, half of our audience, I know I just ran a survey and half of our audience are all hunters. So not only do they fish, but they hunt as well. So, you know, deer hunting, elk hunting, duck hunting, you name it. I think that a lot of people are going to like what we're going to talk about today. But we first met on, I think, well, it won't be the first time we met, but we did engage a little bit on that thing, Clubhouse. And I just asked this because I'm curious where it's it was at. I think it was in 21, maybe it was covid but is that clubhouse still going at all? Do you have the idea? I have no idea. That started out as such a cool thing. I was so excited about that. And I was just certain that it was going to work. And then it did not. Yeah, and it did not. The clubhouse app, a social media thing did not work. But uh, well, at least not for me. No, not for me either. No, we chatted a bit on there. But uh, but take us into this real quick. I want to talk about the Food of Field podcast. I want to talk about you know, cooking wild game and fish and things like that. But um, let's get back into fishing because I know you have a connection to fly fishing as well. Uh, How did you first get into fly fishing and we'll take it into this podcast? Yeah, for sure. Um, it came to me from an old mentor. I was guiding up in the Northwest Territories on the eastern arm of Great Slave Lake. And uh, there was an old, one of the head guys guides there was Charlie Woodbury. And Charlie was from uh, Salt Lake City. And I don't know, he just, he was in his late 60s, I would say, when I was in my early 20s. And he just sort of took me under his wing and and he would fly fish a, a lot when we would go out in the evenings in the river near the cabins. And uh, I just became enthralled with it and I had to do it. It was a thing that struck me as artful and... I've always sort of gravitated towards the things that are difficult and the things that require, you know, that sort of uh, dedication to craft, right? So it seemed like, yeah, I just, and I've never looked back. Like, I can't remember the last time I touched, you know, a regular spinning rod. It's been decades. Right. So you've got the fly fishing 
has been going strong for a while and and also on the hunting. So you were doing a lot of the hunting and, and what was this like you were guiding groups would come up and they were hunting up there? Well, I did a lot of guiding for about 10 years in my 20s, maybe not 10 years, seven years. And so it started out as guiding for other outfitters. So one of the people that I guided for was uh, Jim Hole in here in the Edmonton bow zone. And he taught me, you know, a lot about bow hunting, these huge whitetails that we have up here. And so that was a good guy to get connected with. And then from there, I was trying to fill my calendar with gigs. And um, I hooked up with a, a guy, Warren Witherspoon. And Warren was uh, the owner of a bear hunting camp and in northern Alberta and then Frontier Fishing Lodge, which is, like I said, on, on Great Slave Lake. And so my calendar got filled up really fast between those two outfitters. Oh, another person I should mention as well is a friend of mine. I guided with him. We were, we're the same age, Jeff Lander. And uh, so Jeff and I started at the same time. And Jeff now has his own outfit and still doing it called Primitive Outfitting. Uh, so he does mainly bear hunts uh, in northern BC now. So my calendar got filled up really fast with being outdoors. And I was obviously crazy about hunting and fishing to begin with. So it, you know, I took advantage of learning from people that we were guiding or people that I was hanging out with, like Charlie and Jim Hole and all these people. And it just morphed into a lifelong sort of obsession. But I mean, it started way before then, like as far back as I can remember, I have wanted to kill things and eat them. <laughs> and it is so ingrained in my DNA from the time I was like seven or eight years old. I remember wanting to cook things. Right. So it's kind of interesting that I didn't go down the chef route, but thankful that I didn't. So Right. And this has been going back like the hunting and outdoors, like your whole life as a kid is that sort of thing. Oh, dude, I would drive my mom nuts to get a gun when I was like seven years old, like grade one, you know, and uh, we had, we grew up on the farm north of Edmonton. So just at the, in the parkland, you know, just on the edge of the boreal forest and near our farm, we had wetlands that were filled with ducks. And well, at the time they were only filled with ducks and, uh, you know, pine sand hills around us and agricultural land. So we had whitetails and and ducks and grouse and rabbits and squirrels. And uh, yeah, there was a good part of my time when I was just out, you know, after school, I would be gone. And that, and on the weekends, I would just be gone, like disappear for two days kind of thing. Um, and mom wouldn't let me have a gun. So it naturally went to a bow and that was okay with her. So that's how I got started with bow hunting. And uh, I've only picked up a rifle in the last two years like I haven't oh really I own a rifle now and and kind of spend half my time wishing I didn't you know it's one of those things where you know not that I have anything against that I am I just finished talking with a guy here this morning about that sort of thing where he's feeling beat up a bit because you know people you know making fun of him or saying that he's not a hunter because he chooses to use a rifle or a compound bow or whatnot right so sick of that just tired of it. Gotcha. Wow. So, okay. So I see it now. The bow hunting has been there and I love that your mom would give you a gun. So you're like, all right, I'll, I'll use a bow. And a lot of times you hear people, maybe not a lot of times, but I know it'd be my style. I haven't got into bow hunting yet, but it seems like people start rifle hunting and then they get into bow hunting or they start conventional fishing and they get into fly fishing. 
right? But you did bow hunting from the beginning. I mean, what does that look like as far as the game? Because you're up in this an area where I've been up there a little bit, and I know, I mean, hunting that way of life revolve. You know, a lot of people are doing that. Do you just find wild game everywhere? Is that not a problem? filling your freezer for you throughout the year? Or is that pretty much what everybody does up there? No, I wouldn't say everybody does it. I was just talking, I just had Clay Newcomb on the show and Clay is down in Arkansas. And uh, so funny, I find it so interesting between the US and Canada. You guys have such a rich culture with firearms, obviously. And and I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. Like I know that you have some problems with it. I'm saying you have a rich culture with it. And along with firearms was the hunting culture and the the pioneer culture. And it's funny because in Canada, we had the exact same timeline of history. You know, we had the fur trade and we had pioneers and, and settlers and that all had firearms, of course, and they were all hunting to eat, to live. But for some reason, that hunting culture didn't really translate over very well. I find it interesting. So not a lot of people up here hunt, I would say. Well, oh, well, that's interesting. So you're saying basically, yeah, a lot of people that hunting, you think the hunting culture transferred over, I mean, maybe more even down here than it did up there in Canada. Oh, dude. Like, yeah. That's amazing. So hunting up here... And I'm just talking in generalities, yeah. of course. So the people that I hang out with, you know, are artful, thoughtful hunters. But a lot of the hunting up here is simply a weekend once a year where you go and get your moose or you go and get your deer. And it's driving around in your truck and the agricultural roads until you see the moose or the deer and you jump out and you shoot it. And um You know, and of course, there's legalities with all of that that just tend to, yeah, (laughs) you know, go out the window, excuse the pun. But, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody's a poacher, but it's just that culture of hunting is not a pastime. It's a means to an end because I want moose meat in the freezer. And so that's sort of the culture up here. There's not a lot of, it's like, go to Cabela's, get the stuff that you think that you've been told that you need go out for the weekend and shoot your deer. And now you're a hunter and you are, yeah. you know, there's different levels of hunter. And again, I'm not, I refuse to be the person that belittles that, you know, any outdoor activity, we're all brothers in fishing and hunting. So that makes sense. And I think, I mean, I think what I'd love to hear is about how, you know, what you do with food to feel and everything you have going is a little different than that, because I think we have plenty of those people. In fact, I'm kind of like that person. You know, I mean, fly fishing has been my thing just because, I've got a couple of little kids and it's been tough for me to get out and do as much stuff as I used to do, you know, just because of life. So I am kind of that hunter. Okay. Deer hunting, you know, weekend week is coming, you know, elk hunting has been on the back burner for me. So it hasn't been like a daily way of life. Describe that for you. Like what is hunting, bow hunting for you? Is that what it is? Is this thing always in every day for you? Yeah, I didn't really answer your question, did I? So there is no shortage of wild game in my freezer you know, and it's just me that eat, you know, so I don't need a lot. So my hunting has morphed into um, more simplistic terms. So from the time I've been seven years old or eight years old or whenever it started, I hunt for food and I fish for food. I just can't overemphasize the that is my focus. And so, yeah, it's pretty easy now when I go out to find that game and I devote enough time to it where, you know, it, I'm usually successful at whatever it is that I'm trying for. And it's just, sometimes I don't try that hard because I don't, (laughs) I don't need it, you know, or whatever. Right. So, yeah. 
Every adventure on the water starts with a single cast at Jackson Hole Flight Company. The first cast begins with them. From their thoughtfully designed rods and reels to intricate detail of over 1,000 meticulously hand-tied fly patterns, they embrace the story of dedication and their commitment to quality in every product they carry. Shop for fly fishing gear where quality meets affordability and exceptional craftsmanship doesn't come with a hefty price tag. Arm yourself with the gear that doesn't just support your passion, but amplifies it. Fly fishing begins here. Shop now, jacksonholeflycompany.com. That's jacksonholeflycompany.com. I want to hear about the food of field because this is where I first connected with you. How did the idea of a podcast come to be and how's it been going with that? Mm. Well, I've always been, because of my background with guiding and outfitting, I've sort of been in that sphere of content creation, even back into the 90s, you know, when people, Larry Jones and Chuck Adams and all those guys, I mean, back then it was it was writing magazine articles, of which I've appeared in countless of them, and I started writing them myself. Then it was like the videos, all of a sudden hunting videos became a thing on VHS. And so I've been a part of a lot of other people's hunting videos. And it's just sort of morphed. Currently, I'm on screen character with uh, the From the Wild web series. Hmm. And I've been doing that for this, we're recording season 10 this wow. year. And that's my friend, Kevin Coslin, who who owns that franchise. And so I just sort of was have been attracted to sharing the things that I do. I mean, I get told over and over again, what you, you know, you live an interesting life or you're doing interesting things. And so I first thought of the podcast, okay, so let's just share interesting things. Well, here's another thing too. The other interest that I've had since I, for a long time has been radio broadcasting. So as a kid, I remember distinctly playing, you know, playing with my siblings in the house and we would, I don't know, we did all sorts of weird things, you know, as far as creating little ecosystems within our house. But I remember one time, you know, my brother and sister were upstairs in the house and they had their houses, you know, we'd built them little houses. And then I was the radio station down in my bedroom. And, you know, and we were using walkie talkies, you know, and that was mm -hmm. the radio, you know, That's cool. so I was broadcasting. And so you tie all of that stuff together and you come up with the idea of having a podcast. I didn't want to copy Kevin. That was important to me. So, you know, don't do video. It's kind of tough when we're out doing stuff together to have two sets of video equipment going. So, so yeah, I just uh, went with the podcast idea. Of course, like most things in my life, I joined it a little too late and missed the gold rush type of thing. And you know <laughs> what? Honestly, though, Dave, I don't know what you think, but I think we're still in the infancy of all of this. Yeah, I think that's what I always say. I think that it always feels like with podcasting or a lot of these things, you're all, you always miss it. Same for me. I started in 2017 with the podcast and I was like, oh man, I'm way late to the game. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? And But I wasn't, and I don't think you are or anybody right now that wants to start a podcast. I think that there's always room, right? Because because you're just building a, you know, a group of people, a community, and anybody can do that. That's what's amazing about this. You know what I mean? So I, th I think you're good. I don't know when you started. We could talk about that, but I think you're still doing well. Yeah. Well, I'm only, I'm not even a hundred episodes in yet. Yeah. You're 97, right? Pretty close to a hundred. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think I'm fine, but you know what the struggle was for me, Dave, like you're so focused with your show. And so it makes it so that the audience knows what to expect from you. But with me, it's like, 
you know, I don't know, dude, like I'm building a net out of hazel or I'm fly fishing or I'm, or bow hunting or rifle hunting or foraging or whatever it is I'm doing. Right. right. So I create this. So it's really interesting what you said right off the top where you did the poll that, you know, about half, what did you say? Half of your listeners? Yeah. A little 55%, I think in the last survey we did. I suspect that's kind of low. So it's yeah. probably a reflection of, you know, your audience because you are just so niche down into fly fishing. But anyways, I'm trying to pay you a compliment because I think that's the way to go. So with me, my problem has been, well, you're too, like anytime I talk about fly fishing, my, you know, I feel, I don't think it's true, but I feel like some of my audience, you know, their eyes roll glaze over. And then, you know, conversely, when I talk about bow hunting, the fly fisher guys disappear and girls. Right. And now talk about, so you have uh, like within your pod on your website at uh, foodafieldpodcast.com, there's a couple of podcasts. There are a few there. Now describe that how, because we're doing something similar, I think, but now talk about that. Well, it occurred to me to niche down because I've always looked up to you and your show and, and others. And I went, okay, so try to niche down a bit. And I think I'm creating a problem where maybe one doesn't exist, but I don't know. Time will tell. So I just decided to go with a series. So with my past life, I've became friends and I've hunted a few times with E. Donald Thomas Jr. And so he was the editor of Traditional Bow Hunter magazine. And I published several articles through him. So whenever I want to publish an article, whenever the you know the, it hits me, I usually just send Don an email and go, here's what I'm thinking. And he'll edit it for me or whatever, and then submit it to the magazine. Since then, he's gone away, not completely from the magazine, but he's gone away as editor and introduced me to David Tetzlaff. And David is a younger guy. Well, <laughs> he's like my, I think he's younger than I am. Yeah. You know, we're kind of the same age. Yeah. And uh, so I'm calling myself a young guy all of a sudden. <laughs> but anyways, we became friends and the idea sort of came to us to create a loose partnership. There's no money involved. It's just the magazine promotes the show and in exchange, I promote the magazine and they, with their connections with all of the authors of the magazine and these bow hunting legends that I probably wouldn't have access to on my own. Um, you know, now all of a sudden I've got access to these people. There's a few like, you know, Clay Newcomb that I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I've known him since before he was a big time guy. So he was gracious enough to grant me, some of his precious time, but other guests that we've had on that series, I, you know, they don't know me from Adam and wouldn't give me the time of day without David, you know, giving him a bump on an email. And so there's that, there's the traditional bow hunters journey and there's the food of field podcast. And then now I've started a new series, which is called unlock the wild. And so the theme that surrounds all three of those podcasts is inspiring and educating people. So what's happening, what I find really interesting right now is that there is a huge population of young people in their 20s and 30s that live in this in a condo in downtown Toronto or downtown anywhere and that are wanting to live the lifestyle that you and I take for granted where we go out fishing and or we go out hunting and we have, you know, a freezer full of what they perceive as free food or, you know, at least it's sustainable. And so all of three of those series are geared towards inspiring and educating those people. Now, you know, there's going to be a lot of listeners to your show who have been fly fishing for 30 or 40 years or whatever. 
that are going to say, well, yeah, I don't want to listen to that. So the challenge with that is to keep those people interested yeah. uh, as well. So I blend in a lot of like situational type audio. So I'll, I'll be recording one of our trips and then I try to record, you know, as the mule deer is coming down the trail towards me, I'll be recording that. And uh, I try to capture that audio, that that adventure style, that documentary style stuff. So, and then, you know, when I'm talking to people, like if I'm doing an interview like you do, it's always geared towards, well, how do I get started in doing it? But then, you know, you mix in enough stories to keep people that already know how to do it interested, right? So, yeah. Long answer to a short question. Yeah, no, it's good. It's so these series, so you have these series going within your feed. So it's all in the same feed of your podcast and the same listeners, they just get a chance to make it clear. And that's kind of what we do, what I've done now with, you know, our, our Great Lakes podcast series, our Phil Rowley is doing the Stillwater, you know, littoral zone. And I'm trying to do that where I, you know, and it is going to our feed. Yeah, exactly. Traveled. So it's an opportunity, I think, to dig into a topic a little more. And so not everybody is going to like Great Lakes podcast. Some people won't listen that week. But I think what I've heard is that, I mean, we've done a little bit different maybe too, is that I'm not even hosting the show. So I let Jeff go out and do the host. Sometimes he does solo episodes. Sometimes Phil does solo, you know. So I think those guys are the gurus. I'm actually not the guru. And I I think in your (laughs) situation, you are the guru. That's the, the unique thing, right? You could just riff on podcasts on your own and people, right? Yeah, but that's, I think, why you and I get along is like, you know, we've been doing these things a long time, but has there ever been a situation where you haven't learned something? Yeah. Whether it's from the situation or from somebody else? Like, so, you know, that's the other sort of toxicity that I see online with hunting and fishing world is, you know, this this sort of attitude, like, no, I'm going to tell you what to do. And like, so I don't like that. It's like, I've been doing this a long time and as have you and as have other people. And so I have a lot to share, but I'm also genuinely curious about what it is that Dave does when he's fly fishing and, or what it is that somebody else does when they're bow hunting. So I don't know that that's what keeps me alive is the constant learning about how to do things. So. Right. Yeah, me too. This is good. Well, we're going to learn, I think today I want to talk, I had a, uh, you know, we get a few questions on this and one of this one I was looking at was from Janelle Molin, who was asking about, you know, cooking game fish, game or fish equipment, best techniques to prepare fish in the field, recipes and stuff like that. What do you, you know, if somebody's sitting there and and part of it is the getting of the animals or the meat, right? So you got to have that part. But I mean, some of that you could go to the store potentially, right? Or your local market and get whatever. But once you get it, you know, what do you tell somebody if they're kind of new to preparing? Say they're they're terrible at cooking, you know, and they just want to be they just want to make some food that tastes good. Like, where do you start with that? I'm not sure. Like, what you do? Do you you know have your Traeger and you know what I mean? It's do you think? Are you doing all sorts of techniques out there in the field of cooking and all that stuff? No, no. So one of the things that I really like to focus on as well is and it hurts my sponsorship opportunities, is that I don't really like gear. Mm. I don't want a lot of gear. So, you know, I have a really nice pan. It's a little De Beyers pan, maybe eight inches across kind of thing. And that goes with me everywhere. I have a grill from Bare Bones Living that I adore that sort of sets up over top of any heat source. And that's all I need. That's it. That's literally all I need. And... um The biggest thing that I can tell people in preparing any wild food, the number one thing by far 
that is important is the method of preparing it. it has nothing to do with seasoning for the most part it has nothing to do with you know marinating or this or that it's how you prepare it so for instance with fish you know let's just use trout yeah um one of my favorite absolutely my favorite thing to do is just to pan fry it and you go well okay, we've all tried that and failed but so there is a technique to doing that that is correct right mm -hmm. and so one of the things that i do like so if i that's another topic of discussion is the whole catch and keep yeah. type thing you know i tend to fish waters where i'm allowed a keep limit i don't necessarily i'm not a big fan of going out and purposefully catching and release fish so i will catch a fish and i will and then so another layer of so you're going to go well yeah i can catch a fish on my first cast does that mean my day is done fly fishing it's like no because i add layers i add photography i add cooking i add uh, watercolor painting or journaling i add entomology i add like <laughs> there's Everything. i have layers of enjoyment where i could literally go out make one cast on a fly stream catch my fish and then fill the rest of my day with doing really cool stuff right yep. and so that's that's my mo but you know so getting back to preparing the fish i, I catch my fish i learned from a good friend of mine uh chef that to score the skin so i take a sharp knife and i just cut uh, lateral lines down the side of the fish i heavily season it with salt and i get the pan ready and the, in the pan has a combination of butter and oil about half and half so that the butter doesn't burn and i'll get the pan to a high heat but you know just before it smokes kind of thing and so there's a whole technique with campfire cooking around that in itself which i could talk about for an hour you yeah. know like you see so you never have that pan over an open flame it's over coals and and the fire is going in another part of the of the campfire you keep your fire going to generate more coals and then you add or subtract coals from underneath your grill to regulate your heat right so i get it i get the pan medium high to high and then the trout goes in the pan and it's going to sizzle hard and the temptation is to flip it and check it, flip it and check it. And you're going to destroy it if you do that. Oh, right. It's going to be gross. So leave it longer than you think you should until all of those sugars in the skin and the flesh have caramelized and it's created a crust. And you can even go a little bit overboard and char it. And that will give it you know, another distinct flavor. But take it to whatever level you want and then just flip it over. So of course you've gutted the fish ahead of time, but that's all I do. I just that's it. got it. Yeah. And then you're going to take it over to the other side and do the exact same thing. And then the next most important, so now you've got the texture so that wherever you've made the slit, that skin has sort of curled up and it's caramelized and charred a little bit and crusted and it's crunchy and it's just Jeez. salty, buttery goodness. Right. And uh, and you've done that on both sides. The next thing is to take it off the pan and then just leave it sit because depending on the size of the fish, you might have flesh in the middle of the fish that isn't quite cooked yet, yep. but it will. So just leave it, right? So, you know, if you've got a small fish, you know, you're done. You just eat it right there. But if you've got a larger fish, then yeah, you're going to want to just leave it sit for 15 minutes and, okay. and the internal temperatures will regulate could you do this with a large, like say a larger fish, you know, that's, I don't know, whatever, but five, 10 pound fish, just cut it into chunks to put in there, that sort of thing. Or... 
yeah, we've done that with a steak. You know, you can stake it or like a fillet. But if you do it with a fillet, then the principle is exactly the same where you're going to score that skin. And then what I usually do is skin side down and I get that char built up because you don't want the skin to be, you know, wet and, and loose. You want it crisp, right? So skin side down and you're going to see the white in the flesh start to creep up, you know, the sides of the fillet. And when it gets about halfway up, I would say that's usually about when you're done. And then I'm just going to flip it over and I'm going to flip it over for like, depending on your heat, like maybe a, not even a minute, you know, like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then you're done and then just serve it like that. And so the thing with game that I mentioned is the preparation, but it's also like the cooking level that you take it to. So you don't want fish to go well done. Yeah. You want it to be medium or medium rare. And that's the way I like it, at least anyways. And that's when it's going to have all of its moisture, all of its yeah. fishy yeah, goodness. It it's just going to, right? And then conversely, it's the opposite with, well, no, it's not the opposite. It's exactly the same with like wild game. So for instance, whitetail. And that, but you get into different sort of cuts, right? If you're doing a steak, then you do not want to take whitetail beyond, you know, medium rare, like at most medium rare, because the minute you overcook it, it gets gamey and livery and gross. Like if you take, you know, a whitetail, that's why a lot of people complain about whitetail or venison. Well, it tastes, it tastes gamey. How do I get rid of the gamey taste? It's because you took it like a ribeye or something, right? Like, you know, if you like your steaks well done or, or medium well. Well, you can't do that with venison. You have to learn to like it a little bit juicy and pink or red. And then that taste completely goes away. Like yeah. it's just gorgeous. So that's good. So trout, so that's good. We talked about the trout and that is a good, easy thing to think about as, as far as the, the tiny, I guess if you think of a tiny, let's just say just roughly, I know this changes a little bit, but if you've got a you know, a 10 inch fish that's on the pan or well, an eight inch fish that's on the pan. Mm -hmm. You, I mean, roughly are you, it's on a side for like four, a few minutes, four minutes before you flip it. Yeah. That seems about right to me. Yeah. You're not on there for 10. Yeah. No, you, you can check it. Like you can flip it. You can just move it up gently and see where you're at with that caramelization. Like, has it gone dark brown or light brown? And I always like to take it to a darker brown and then uh, do the same thing on the other side. Yeah. Squala Fly Fishing puts as much time, thought, and effort into designing fishing apparel as you put into finding fish. Founded in Bozeman, Montana by a group of fly anglers who wanted better gear, Squala builds functional, comfortable, and dependable fly fishing apparel. I've been loving the Thermal 150 hoodie I've been wearing from Squala, and to be honest, I haven't been able to take this thing off. It's uh, super soft. It's perfect in the uh, whether you got hot weather, cold days. This thing is an all-around great piece of gear. Combining advanced materials with fishing-focused, purpose-built design, Squala waders, jackets, shirts, pants, and insulation are made for us. To help wet fly swing listeners, that's you. Squala is offering a 10% discount on your next order. Just use Wet Fly Swing 10 at checkout right now to get 10% off your next order. That's Squala, S-K-W-A-L-A. Gear for us, the like-minded few serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. So what I would, you got me thinking, you mentioned it, whitetail. 
and uh, in whitetail are spread around. I'd imagine we don't have as much of them where we are, but I mean, you hear about these stories of just whitetail everywhere. People are shooting back east, whitetail left and right. So I'm sure a lot of people have those opportunities. What? So if you got the whitetail, is this like a grill thing? Talk about how you would cook this a good chunk. Let's just say, I don't know if you want to think of a cut of meat. How would you prepare a whitetail? Oh, my favorite way of doing most things is to braise them. Braising or confit is another way to do it. And uh, those are basically uh, simmering your pieces of meat. Confit would be to simmer that piece of meat in fat of some Mm. sort. So, you know, bare fat is a great one, but any sort of fat. And you will just slowly, like it's just barely bubbling. You're not deep frying it at all. It's just, it's hot. Uh, or it's warm oil that is cooking the meat over the course of hours. And then same with braising. So braising would be doing that in flavored water. So you can, if you just put a piece of meat in a slow cooker, that would be a form of braising, Uh, except you want more liquid in there, right? And then you flavor that liquid with herbs or spices or or other vegetables or whatever it might be, right? right? So that's my favorite way is to take. Now, there's the exception that proves the rule that, you know, that's when you can take venison to obviously very well done, where it's literally just falling apart. Um, and you will, you will not have that gamey taste because, of course, you know, it absorbs the flavors from whatever the liquid is they were using, right? So you still get that good venison-y flavor, but it's a good flavor. It's not a gross liver flavor. So that's my favorite way. And then the braising liquid is uh, still uh, good for sauces, for instance. So, you know, what often what I'll do is I'll take that braising liquid and then just, uh, you know, reduce it down to uh, a more flavorful type of sauce, I guess. So yeah, then that can go over top and yeah, that's my favorite way. Yeah. There's all sorts. I mean, and sausage, of course, we do a lot of ground work with meat, but you know, here's another thing though, too, Dave, is like a lot of people, this is so common. It's not even funny. Of course you will take your worst cuts and make them into ground, right? Shoulder cuts or you know, neck or whatever, but that's, you shouldn't do that. Mm. I treat my ground meat as if it was a prime cut. So oftentimes I'll take, I've even done it with tenderloin, but now we're getting a little ridiculous, but to take the loin for instance, which is typically a steak cut, like grind that up and you will have the most amazing outcome of texture, right? If you did a, a patty or a sausage or or a meatball, for instance, mm, right? Yeah, right. So you do a meatball with like a piece of neck meat, it's still going to be like eating ground up racquetballs, right? Yeah. But if you do that with a loin, it's just going to be melty goodness. And then what I do with those rough cuts, like a shoulder cut or a shank or neck, neck especially, that's what I use for braising. So I do a lot of ground and I do a lot of braising. I don't do a lot of steaks, actually. I'm not a big steak guy, so... So you don't, so when you talk about that grill you have, what are you putting on that grill over the fire? Oh, a pot or my pan, you know, with that braising liquid. Oh, gotcha. So you're not literally, you're not doing a lot of like throwing meat on the fire, like on a grill, sort of just flame broiled sort of thing. No, because wild game doesn't really lend itself very well to that. There's no fat in it. So there's no, 
there's no moisture benefit to it, right? You can gotcha. grill it and it's just going to be leathery dry on the outside. Yep. Unless you cook like a, a juicy uh, cow you know, hamburger, right? It's got all sorts of fat in there. Yeah, that's totally different. Yeah, that you're mixing bear fat in with or, or pork fat or whatever. Yeah. And that's, so then that's how I create that moisture and that flavor. So venison steaks to me, a lot of times too, I will braise a steak. So I'll cut a steak and then I'll braise it until it's tender. And then I'll put a sauce over it. So like a, it becomes like a Salisbury steak kind of idea, right? Right. But just to grill a steak, a, like a venison steak, yeah, no, I'm not a big fan of that. It just gets dry. Like there's no way that you can make it not dry, right? Yeah. there's no fat. And I've done a lot of that in previous, you know, over the years as I've definitely screwed that one up. Is that, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. So, and I love that. So basically, I mean, the tip here is, yeah, you could go get a slow cooker if you don't have one and basically start there and just think of braising as yeah. a good way to cook. What is, you know, if we do think recipes, what would be a good resource? If somebody really wants to do this, they, they're going to go to cook, maybe they have one, but they want to learn about some of the recipes, like you said, the herbs, what to put in, where would you send them to learn about that? I probably not the right guy to ask about that because I don't follow recipes. Um, so that's another sort of tip I would give people as well. What flavor do you like? What do you like? Do you like sweet and sour type stuff? Well, then, you know, sure, look up how to make a sweet and sour sauce. Do you like bechamel type sauces? Do you like creamy sauces? Yeah, like, right. Do you like cheesy sauces? So the only recipe I would ever say that you need to learn is how to make those sauces. Because those sauces are going to be the critical piece of the puzzle. The meat itself is just a braised piece of meat that has flavor, but the sauce is going to be what adds that that beautiful finishing touch of flavor. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So get a sauce book. Get a sauce cookbook. That's it. Sauce book. That'll be easy. Okay. Sauce. And then talk about the sausage. How do you do that? What is that a long process if somebody wanted to get into making sausage or making oh. it? Yeah. How does that look? Gosh, no. So you you don't even need a grinder. So in the old days, you know, I don't know when grinders were invented, right. but whatever, there was a point in time when they weren't. And so you can just, you can grind meat with a knife and you just mince it. It's called mincing. And you just chop and chop and chop and chop and chop until you get the consistency that you're looking for. And then the thing I love about, you know, quote unquote sausage is just that you can add whatever flavors you want and it's infinite. Like, do you want it salty? Do you want it sweet? Do you want it spicy? Do you want it peppery? Do you want it, you know? Do anything. Yeah. So I would say with sausage that the sky's the limit. Like literally you can add any flavor that you ever wanted. And the beautiful thing about that is that you can do that with, you know, foraging with wild, there's plenty of plants out there that give you different tastes. There's different ingredients, mushrooms and different things that you can chop in there uh, and mince in with your sausage that, you know, you would never be able to buy that from a grocery store. And a lot of times I'm riffing. So what's interesting is I'm talking to you about this and I just came up with an idea for my next sort of sausage meat and it's going to be diced or minced mushrooms oh, yeah. in with the sausage. Right. You wow. know, have you ever heard of that? No. Like, I don't think I have. No, but I love mushrooms. So it'll be like a sausage. It'll be like a mushroomy sausage, right? God. Wow. It's like the ultimate, add some eggs and you got a full breakfast there. That's like the, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 
So that's the thing that I love about wild game or wild or cooking in general, but wild game cooking is just, yeah. you know, I'm big into layers, Dave. Like, yeah. you know, so many outdoors people stop at the groceries, just stop at the gas station and grab a can of beans and, and uh, you know, a six pack of beer and that's, and then they go fly fishing. But I've never enjoyed my outings more than I do now when I've added in those different layers of cooking, of photography, of, you know, even journaling or writing is a big thing for me now. You know, I don't know about you, but yeah. you go on a trip and it's like, and then you're talking with your buddy about it later. He's like, do you remember that fish? I'm like, oh, no, I don't remember that. What do you, you know? No. So like keeping a journal yeah. is something that's huge for me now and takes up some time. You know, maybe I'll take an hour of my day to journal um, right. or paint. I've gotten into painting and I'm horrible at it and it's hard for me to do, but man alive, like to sit on the bank of a stream or river that you just caught a big brown trout out of and then try to capture that, you know, with the photo or with a painting or with words. Like, yeah, that's powerful stuff. God, that is amazing. And then have a good meal afterwards. Right, you know? right, <laughs> right, just, right. Your whole day is filled with cool <laughs> right? Yeah, I love this. I love what you're painting here. You know, the picture is that, uh, I mean, journaling is a great tip because I think that's something I, again, struggle with, but it is a great thing, a great habit, you know, to do because it gets you, yeah, obviously writing, capturing moments and, you know, long-term. Yeah, you could probably write a book, I'm sure, if you did enough of it, right, journaling over time. Well, I don't know. Like, I guess I'll plug it a little bit. Yeah. You can edit it out if you want, but I've created some journals. And so they're over at uh, Amazon. Oh, cool. And uh, just kind of done it, but I've created like a fly fishing journal huh. and a bow hunting journal. And so they're relatively similar, but. Now, you, is this a journal you mean like literally somebody can go buy a blank journal and then they can use, or is it a written book? No, it's a, you know, you fill in the details. Oh, good. Oh, this is awesome. But I've offered prompts, you know, so. And because I've done it for so long, so with fly fishing, I'm asking you, you know, questions like, what insects did you see? What flies did you use? What worked? What didn't? What was the water temperature? What was the time of year? What stream were you on? You know, what did you catch? What? And then most importantly, you know, notes on the side, what would you do differently next time? Or what do you want to try next time? So those are all the details that I always put into just a blank notebook. And I thought, okay, well, let's create something that's kind of neat and prompts people with those questions. And the beautiful thing about that is that when you collect enough data, you can go back and reread your trips from last year and you completely relive them. Yeah. It's like, oh, I forgot about that, you know, or, hey, let's go fishing this weekend. And you flip through your journal and you realize that for the last three years, fishing on that particular weekend is really sucked. Mm. So, you yeah. know, maybe you do something different or, Maybe you try something completely out of the box, you know, yeah, and then the, the other benefit to it is that you create an heirloom. You kind of alluded to it, but you like imagine having six or seven of those journals that are sitting on your shelf and you're 90 years old and your grandkids or great grandkids are wheeling around and, and they want to read about grandpa's trip that he did, you know, 60 years ago kind of thing. So I think those are powerful things to tap into as well. I love that. Yeah, I think the, uh, and I've heard a few of those stories. I mean, I think we've been interviewing some, uh, some biographers, you know, we got another one coming up with like, uh, Hemingway and stuff like that. And they, you hear about these stories of people who wrote their memoirs. I mean, Hemingway is obviously a huge writer, but you know, mm -hmm. I heard this story about us Ulysses S. Grant, kind of the civil war back, you know, and 
he was talking about how he struggled, went broke, but literally towards the end of his life, he was like, all right, I'm going to write my memoir and save my family. And he literally wrote his memoir and gave his family money for like, you know, the rest of their lives sort of thing. So oh, I didn't know that story. That's neat. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's pretty cool to imagine like that's, you know, again, it's not about the money. I think the journaling is just about the experience of journaling, capturing moments, like you said, which is cool. So we're, if we're on Amazon, how do we track down this journal? I want to take a look at it. Well, you'll just look up, uh, type in search fly fishing journal, for instance. You know, you'll see a lot of fly fishing journals, but mine pops up relatively soon, I want to say. Yeah. Um, so it's just under the author, John David Schneider. I think you can even look up food afield fly fishing journal. But if you just look up fly fishing journal, it should pop up. And then you have to look for the author. I don't know what's taking so long with Amazon, but... Um, they haven't showed the interior layout yet, mm. uh, and maybe they never will. But it's kind of neat. It's stylized and and has lines where you can write. And well, actually, no, I don't think it has lines. I took the lines out because yeah. sometimes you just don't write to the same level as the lines. But anyways, it has different prompts like time of day and you know species and all those things that I mentioned. Um, and then on the side, it has a little barred area where you you know it asks you know what do you want to try next time or things like that. So Perfect. yeah. And then I've done a bow hunting journal, oh, cool. I've done an outdoor adventure journal and they ask different, they have different prompts because of course, you know, they have different activities, but yeah. Yeah. I love this. Love, this is great. No, I think, I think I thought about this a while back, something like this and just, again, I'd have, yeah, you should do it. Yeah. yeah I haven't been doing enough journaling, but I, I'm going to stick with that. So you mentioned, let's touch on, I want to be cover a lot of things here, but, um, you touched on foraging. Let's talk about that a little bit. So if somebody, you know, foraging, you know, obviously plants are different in all parts of the country, but where does somebody start with the foraging? Is there, you know, again, like resources, what do you recommend? If somebody's kind of new to finding out, learning about plants, what do they do? And, and talk about how you do it. Yeah. Well, I hang out with Kevin a lot. My friend, Kevin Coswin, that's kind of his focus. So with the, from the wild series, he runs foraging, clinics and walks and uh, events here in Edmonton. And so he just teaches me a lot. I, I'm not a big forager. Um, I am kind of focused on so many other layers that the foraging isn't really a big priority for me. So I kind of pick the low hanging fruit and <laughs> literally sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, right. so I get to know like the basic mushrooms that are safe and I get to know. Well, that's hard. That's not easy. It right? is. Yeah. yeah. No, but there's plenty of resources out there like books, different books and things like that. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you what mushroom to pick because they're going to be different and I don't want to make a mistake with that. But there's just basic sort of fireweed that grows everywhere and sorrel that grows everywhere. And, uh, you know, you can go to most places and find horseradish growing feral and, you know, all sorts of different things. So there's so many resources. I mean, From the Wild is a good resource for that. Um, and uh, Les Stroud is doing a show to, I think it's called Wild Harvest, where he focuses on that. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's lots. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's one of those things where you could probably, I typically start with the podcast. I'll go to Apple and I'll just type in okay, whatever topic and see what comes up with the pot. And I'm sure there's probably a few podcasts out there, right, that have this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, as we're looking, you know, I mean, we've talked, we started out with the fish thinking about pan fry. What other animals are you kind of harvesting and, you know, hunting and harvesting and eating out there throughout the year? Oh, yeah. Well, grouse is my absolute favorite. Mm. Uh, so rough grouse by far is my favorite. That's another thing that I've kind of played around with is, 
you know, hanging out with chef friends, they like to be sh- all chefy with things, right? Yeah. And so they make this amazing food, but it's it's sort of higher level, more layers. So I've kind of done the opposite where I, I really like making fast food from slow food. So, you know, like roughed grouse, for instance, I love bringing some potatoes with me and some cooking oil. And then I just deep fry French fries and I have a coating or a batter that goes over chunks of roughed grouse. Mm, And then I'll make like chicken strips and fries that you get at Dairy Queen, right? I don't know if you guys have that down in the U.S., but yeah. So chicken strips and fries with rough grouse is, you know, crazy good, right? So yeah, love the rough grouse. We do a lot of hare hunting in the spring. Um, so we eat a lot of hair and again, that's a, that's a dish that is just lends itself perfectly to braising. So you just braise it till it falls off the meat and then you can apply any number of different sauces. So we like experimenting with, you know, different cultural flavors, you know, and so we'll pick a specific flavor that we are going for and we'll learn the recipe for that sauce, whether it's, you know, East Indian or, or North African or Central American or whatever, Hmm. right. It doesn't matter. And sort of pick that flavor. Uh, Here's another tip too, is like pre-make some of your sauces, make them at home and then keep them in the freezer. So you'll have like, uh, you know, little containers or plastic bags filled with myriad flavors or myriad sauces that, you know, and you just bring a couple of those with you so that when you do catch that fish or that grouse or that, that venison, whatever it might be, you can have two or three different meals just by, you know, reheating these different sauces. Right. So. Right. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. So hair and rough grouse. Yeah. Rough grouse. And are you hunting? When do you, I mean, I know you're a little further up North. Are you hunting throughout the whole year? Or are you taking a break or what, what's that look like? Well, I've got lots of stuff going on in my life right now. So I'm on a bit of a break right now. Um, I'm just sort of stuck in front of a computer at the exact wrong time of year to be doing that. But you know what? We've had a really tough year of fly fishing up here. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, lots of heat and droughts and, and wildfires in May. Uh, so yeah. you just didn't want to be outside. And then uh, we had some some heat closures with streams earlier in the season. And then all of a sudden, we've been inundated with rain. So now all the rivers are just blown out, chocolate milk and so you know to have a season like this where i am working on more business stuff and from the computer it's a good time it's it's a good season to do that um then you know come september then things open up for us that's when all of the hunting seasons open rough grouse is huge at that time of year i don't do a lot of whitetail hunting at that time of year because you know keeping meat you know it's often plus 30 or plus 20 degrees so whatever that would be 80 degrees kind of thing so um you know you can't it's so big game hunting isn't comfortable in those scenarios so we do a lot of like i say rough grouse hunting but we also do some waterfowl hunting as well one of the new species that we've been allowed to hunt in the last two years has been uh, sandhill cranes so that is a lot of fun so kevin and i have we spend a lot of time in the fall early fall like september and october down in the grasslands so alberta's neat Alberta strikes me very similar to Colorado, where you have a portion, an eastern portion of the... Is that where you are, Dave? Uh, I'm actually uh, in Oregon on the west coast, but... Oh, yeah, sorry. But, yeah, no, but we do a ton. We've had a lot of, as many Colorado episodes probably as, as you know, the west coast. 
Maybe that's why I thought you were there. But anyways, yeah. so Colorado and Alberta are analogs where you have like in the east part of the country, you have prairies and, and you know, then you have boreal forest in the north, which maybe Colorado doesn't have. But then you have mountains in the west. And so we have all of these ecosystems within a four, three, four hour drive of my home. I can be in Canadian Shield country. I can be in northern boreal forest. I can be in mountains or I can be on the prairies, you know, in the same amount of driving. So early in the season, we spent a lot of time down there. And so we'll be chasing uh, sandhill cranes, geese, and uh, upland birds. Tremendous population of gray partridge and uh, sharp tails down there. So we spent a lot of time doing that. One of the things that we've had fun doing, because we don't quite know how to do it, but the sandhill crane hunting has been really fun as a spot and stalk. Uh, <laughs> it's fun, dude. <laughs> like really? quite often, yeah. So quite often you'll see the cranes out in the field, but they'll only be 20 yards off the off the road. And when I say road, they're just two tracks because this is ranching country. Oh, yeah. So we have permission to be on properties where we can either be on bikes or cars on these roads and yeah you can see them off in the distance and you literally are stalking these sandhill cranes and then coming through the fence line towards them and sneaking up so we've been successful that way or pass shooting or different you just find you know when you're out exploring you just find these different scenarios that you try to take advantage of so right right this is cool that's a new culinary ingredient wild game or wild ingredient that uh is fun dude that is a fun thing to explore I, i'm excited Gosh. about that for this year yeah. that's right ribeye of the sky right wow this is crazy okay and and you have other i guess it sounds like bear hunting was another part what are some of the yep. other big game that you've hunted over the years well over the years i've hunted all of it i don't hunt moose anymore i've done a lot of moose hunting and uh you know fly-in moose hunting and even just local moose hunting around here uh elk well, we have a good amount of elk. I guess the one thing I've never really gotten into was the sheep hunting. And I oh, know yeah. so many people are so excited about that. But I just, yeah, I've never wanted to be bothered with that. Do you have them? Do you have them up there, like wild populations? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's tough to get a tag, you know, like you are, you're waiting. Uh, unless you're bow hunting, you can get a tag every year, actually. But you won't shoot one. Yeah. Where we're at, we have uh, bighorn sheep. They transplanted them a while back, and we have, uh, at least in our in the eastern and the desert, they they are. Um, it's once in a lifetime. You know, you, yeah. you put in the tag, and once you get it, that's all you get one time. At least in our in this state. Yeah, yeah. You can go and you know, if you're a resident of like Northwest Territories or the Yukon Territories in Canada, you can get one like every second year. So my buddy Alex, he is uh, sheep hunting. I think any day now he'll be heading out. So he, yeah. <laughs> he, that's crazy. He's, you know, uh, doll sheep and stone sheep. Yeah. Right. But, um, nice. I'm actually headed up there middle of September to hunt with him. I'll be hunting, uh, caribou mountain caribou with him. Oh, wow. So caribou. I'm stoked about that. I've, I've hunted, we don't have huntable caribou here. We have woodland caribou that are, uh, endangered. So they're protected. I have hunted mountain caribou in Northern BC before, and I will be hunting them again this year in Yukon. So I'm excited about that. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Maverick Fly Fishing specializes in ultralight gear to take your tight line game to the next level. 
Euronymphing was always a big struggle for me until I met up with Jeff on his home water. We had a half a day fishing with the Maverick gear and it got me fully dialed in. Maverick only sells direct to anglers, keeping prices low and providing the best personal service. You're going to have to check in with Jeff right now and let him get you lined out on the water and improving your experience before you know it. You should also check out their new high-performance MVX rod, an extra-sensitive laser-accurate Neuronymph rod that weighs only 2.8 ounces. You mix this in with their ultralight stinger reel, and you've got the lightest rod on the market right now. And right now, you can get 20% off your next order if you head over to maverickflyfishing.com and use the coupon code MAVERICKWFS20 on your next order. That's M A V R K. WFS20, and uh, we'll have a link for this in the show notes as well. You can check in with Jeff and get your Euro game dialed in right now and get on the water and get into fishing. You support this podcast and Maverick Fly Fishing right now by clicking through that link. Okay, back to the show. I wanted to talk a little about outdoor skills, some other just general. We're going to take it out of here in a bit, but I wanted to touch base on that. But uh, before we do, I just want to give, we're doing some of these listener shout outs as we go, just to kind of shout out to some people that we've been connecting with them, connecting with some of our listeners. So, uh, so Brittany uh, Gassner, um, she said, I want to read just a quick email. She said, Hey Dave, um, she said, I love the podcast. I will be watching on Facebook Live. I live in Pennsylvania, and my favorite fish to target is muskie on the fly. So she was referring to on the mm. Facebook Live, we do some of these live events when we're announcing our giveaways, and Brittany checked in there. But she mentioned, you know, her favorite fish to target is muskie, right? So that's another yeah. one of those species. What for you? So first of all, let me just say, Brittany is going to get a Trestle um, Artist Series uh, t-shirt. So Brittany, stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll get that in the mail to you. But uh for you, John, what is that species, the fish? Like if you had one to kind of go for, is it is that an easy choice for you? Or do you have like a bucket list uh, trip or species you're looking at? Well, Brittany's awesome because muskie on a fly, I mean, those I are hard to catch. Yeah. And so you're targeting them, like good for you. Like that's awesome. Um, we have an analog. We don't have muskie here in Alberta, but we have an analog and it's pike. And so we do have northern pike that you know, easily get into the uh, teens and up into the 20s. And when I was fishing in the Northwest Territories, they would routinely get into the 20s. We'd be catching pike that were 25 or 30 pounds. Oh, wow. And we would do that on flies. And that is fun because, yep. you know, especially in the spring when they're in shallower water, you can see your sight fishing, you know, these these huge pike with a fly wow. like oh I, I miss that a lot oh but we can still do that right here locally and a friend of mine uh, reed auto does that religiously and he's been trying to get me out for the last couple of years now and uh just hasn't worked out because of bear hunting and whatnot but i really want to get back into that again um if i had to answer your question though one yeah. fish i'm gonna surprise you the one fish that I target regularly and I love targeting is Rocky Mountain whitefish. Oh, um, whitefish, yeah. They are plentiful. They, you know, are great to catch on flies. I can keep, like, I forget what I can keep. I never keep my limit, so I've never really looked them up. But I think mm. you can keep five. Yeah. And uh, they are an amazing food outcome. And everybody's going to poo-paw that, but they are. So one of the fun things that we do is I will bring a little container of salt and brown sugar uh, for as a curing agent so i will catch you know two or three let's say two i yeah i don't think i've ever caught three but i'll catch two 
you know, good sized Rocky Mountain whitefish and then fillet them, leave the skin on, fillet them and put them in the container and shake it up and get them curing and leave mm. it overnight. And then I'll build a smoker. And there's so many different ways to build a smoker. You know, typically where we go, where we're fly fishing for Rockies, you know, there's river rock and stones. So we'll actually like cobble together a smoker out of rocks. Wow. Yeah, we've done that a bunch of times. Like <laughs> almost every time we go out, we do that. And uh, yeah, and then you find some alder and you get some coals from your fire and you just manage the coals at the bottom of your smoker. And we bring a steel grate with us that you just slide in between the rocks. So you have a grate and yeah, smoke wow. white fish with a nice <laughs> single malt or a nice beer. Yeah, can't beat that. So Wow, that is there's another tip. So yeah, you don't have to go out and buy a big smoker. You could literally just do it in the field. <laughs> oh gosh, that's all we do. Yeah. Perfect. In fact, yeah. in honor of this podcast, I'll put something up on my Instagram. I'll show people what we're talking about with that smoke. Oh, perfect. Don't, it doesn't make good photography. To, um, it's just a smoking pile of rocks, but I'll kind of show you what we did. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Let's. Uh, where is that on Instagram? What are you at? Oh, that's uh, Instagram is at food of field podcast, all one word. Yeah, food of field. So we'll, we'll send people out there and follow you and they can take a look and we'll have this, maybe we post something on the day this goes live, same sort of thing, so people can take a look. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, give me the heads up when you're doing that, and then for sure I'll, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, we'll do well, and we'll send everybody over to take a look on your screen. Thanks, they, Yeah, I know you have some other good photos and stuff there, too, to follow you. Um, this is great. So you mentioned why, I mean, I guess all of this is kind of outdoor skills, but again, I think of like, especially for you, you're out there, you're making a smoker out of rocks and, you know, what you have. I mean, what are the, if somebody's out there, whether fishing, hunting in the woods, what are those outdoor skills somebody should need? And I think you mentioned it, like somebody's from the city, right? They're new to it or they're new to fly fishing. You know, what do they need to know to kind of be safe, do things right out there? What do you tell somebody? Well, you test on so many things. If you're talking about safety, well then, you know, learn how to start a fire, right? That would be the most important skill. How do you do that? Well, let's start there. So the fire without going too deep because, you know, you can rub sticks together, you can do or have some stuff in your bag and what do you recommend on that i use a flint and steel it's just the absolute you know foolproof way to start a fire it, you know flint and steel will always create a spark so um the other thing that i do though is i will bring i have a little container it's an old snuff container it's steel so it's really old and it's filled with char cloth so i'll make char cloth which is a whole nother topic of conversation um or i'll keep like birch bark you know, I'll keep a, a rolled up piece of birch bark in my fire kit bag. So I always have something that's dry. And then, of course, the challenge is to find burning material that's dry. And in your neck of the woods in Oregon, I would imagine that's more of a challenge than I face. But yeah, it depends. It depends on yeah where you're at. But yeah, typically you can find something, right? Yeah. And uh, even if you have to split, you know, some wood to get to some dry stuff in the middle of it, um, there's always a way. Yeah, I mean, there's always a way. A good tip. So yeah, that would be my number one tip as far as safety goes is be able to start a fire. Fire is home. Yeah, uh, It's ingrained into our genetic memory. Uh, fire is home. So it, it'll settle you down. If you're in, in trouble, it'll calm you. If you're hurt or comfort you, it'll stop you from being hypothermic. It just solves almost all of your problems. <laughs> When you, it's yeah. the first thing I do if I'm, especially if I'm out by myself, you know, you get feelings of loneliness or, you know, like you just, we're not designed to be alone. Oh, um, yeah. 
especially in the wild. We've always hunted in packs and we've always been part of a tribe. So, you know, when you're alone and you get a fire going, that can be a powerful thing. As far as enjoyment goes, though, I would say the number one bushcraft skill to learn would be woodworking. Mm. I don't know. Again, I, I'm never going to get sponsored on my show from a <laughs> landing net company because I just build my own landing nets. And that's a lot of fun. You know, you can, I just put one up on my Instagram page not that long ago where I incorporated a mule deer antler as into the handle, oh, you wow. know, and how it forks, right? And sure. then I've attached a bent piece of hazel uh, in a loop around that antler. And then net is the big thing. So I was actually contemplating making my own netting. And I was thinking about this last night. So of course we've made nets since the beginning of time. So it's not hard to make a net, but you know, you want to treat fish properly. And, and I know like the modern nets, they are like some sort of rubber compound, right? That, you know, is more gentle on the fish if you are releasing them. And I still release fish. I mean, obviously like if I'm if I'm fishing for whitefish, that's the other sort of thing that comes into play. If I'm targeting whitefish, I want to catch two whitefish and I happen to catch four or five cutthroats before I catch a whitefish. I'm, I might release those fish, right? So, yeah. so I'm trying to think of what netting material I can use to make. You know, like I was trying to think of like silk rope or something like that. I don't know. We'll yeah. <laughs> you'll have to stay tuned and see what yeah, I can Yeah, yeah, we will. This is awesome. But there's all sorts of things you can make in camp. So I talked about like, you know, painting or journaling or photography or whatever. So, you know, what can you make uh, when you're out in the bush? You know, there's weaving, like weave uh, baskets. Or, <laughs> right. <laughs> what, are the, what are you talking about, Schneider? But anyways, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Like if you can make a little, you know, container of something like and bring it home to your wife or, you know, or your husband, you know, make like make a little weave a little fly box for your partner and so you've gone on your fishing trip and you come home with this little surprise of something that you've made for them and i don't know yeah yeah i get a little romantic about stuff like that so right right well that's your thing i mean right you yeah you, you're doing you said at the start i mean a pan and a grate and a good knife and an axe and a know? good knife yeah what's your so there is a sponsor you could have what what is your your knife type of choice like what style of knife do you like I've got a knife that I've had for years that I love and it's North Mountain. And is this like a fold up or a straight edge, a straight blade? A straight, yeah, North Mountain knives. Yeah, okay. I bought a knife of his, I don't even know where he is, Vermont, I want to say, heart of Appalachia, yeah. West Virginia. Yeah, anyways, I have his Mountain Hunter and that's my favorite knife, yeah. There you go. All right, perfect. So. Well, I think we've uh, we've covered a number of things, kind of, I think, keeping it high level, which is what I wanted to, to do here. Um, <laughs> you know, as people are listening and they're thinking about this, I'm always thinking of one thing I think about is where can we send them, you know, on top of what we've talked about today. You've mentioned a few other people. Any other resources you have out there, other folks that you know of that would be good to keep get people into this more on just like we're saying? I mean, I think that the theme is like you do, it's it's trying to do hunting, fishing with the least stuff possible. It seems like that's kind of the theme here. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Dave, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. That's sort of, you know, minimalistic enjoyment because that's the biggest barrier, right? Is like, yeah. you know, people getting started in this. Well, I don't have $2,000 to spend on a fly rod and reel and all the gear. Right. I don't have waders and boots and everything. Yeah. You don't need all of that. 
you know, river runs through it, man. Yep. We've, <laughs> they used to just wear their boots and get their pants wet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so anyways, and I have, I have nice waders, so I'm not, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but to get started, yeah, you need very little. You can buy a used fly rod. You can make a fly rod. I've made several. So anyways. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, a good place to go. Uh, I don't have any financial connection to it, but he is, you know, one of my best friends. That's Kevin Coslin and his series is From the Wild. So if you go to uh, fromthewild.ca, uh, his website is there and you can purchase the show from there. But he also has all of the foraging tips and he's got a strong Instagram account as well, where he's talking about a lot of different foraging items and different things like that. Great photography. Yeah, good guy to follow. Perfect, perfect. And I want to I want to leave it with pod. I want to go back to podcasting because I want to leave us with we're both podcasters, you know. I mean, you're yeah, doing a lot yeah. of stuff, but I think you know we both have that love of you know the podcast space. Um, so, what is your you know looking first of all on the podcast? Do you listen to a lot of other podcasts, or are you more just doing your own thing? I do listen to other podcasts, yeah. but not as often as I'd like because just so many good things out there. So I, I've listened to yours. Um, I wouldn't say I religiously listen to any particular podcast, um, but I also enjoy because I'm so immersed in it. I don't know what you're like, but yeah. I'm so immersed in it that sometimes I just want to listen to a show about history yeah, or about anthropology or ufos or sasquatch or yeah like whatever dude so you listen to podcasts and other other uh topics other than fishing and hunting yeah sure me too Sure, just to take you know i'm just so ingrained in this industry with everything i do that it's kind of fun to just get distracted by other things yeah i agree yeah i tend to i try not to listen to other fly fishing podcasts and stuff just because you know i want to try to you know not be influenced to kind of do my own thing well, yeah, exactly. There's that too, right? Yeah. yeah. And I've run into that a few times where it's like, oh, I just finished talking about that. And, uh, you know, somebody else is talking about it. And, and it's, you know, it's just accidental that that happens. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. So what would be one, if you hate, say one other podcast, just because so, I always love finding a new podcast. Do you have one in your oh, feet? Oh, dude, I'm not going to go into that trap. I oh, mean, no? if you're going to listen to a podcast, listen to the Wet Fly Swing <laughs> podcast. Yeah. All right. All right. There you go. We got, we got a, we got a good plug for it. And yeah. then what about your show? So out of all the podcasts, you're reaching a hundred, which is an amazing milestone. I think the, I used to hear people say, you know, if you, if you make it past 10 episodes, you, you're kind of, you know, getting past that first stage. But once you hit a hundred, yeah. you're in the top 5%. Yeah, exactly. You're in the top, you know, I mean, most 95, whatever, 99% of people are already out of the space, yeah. but you've, you've, you're hitting a hundred what is, is there a podcast topic, um, guest, somebody that really stands out from you over the last couple of years or the, since you've been doing this as one we should check out? Or what do you recommend if we want to go listen to one of your podcast episodes? Where do we start? Well, start with the latest one. Okay. Because they just keep getting better over time. Yeah. You know, my first few episodes were absolutely crap. So if you want to have a good laugh, go and listen right. to those. But, um, you know, the latest one was with um, Clay Newcomb. Yeah. He's with Meat Eater. Yeah, Meat Eater, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a great conversation. And it went against, it didn't follow any of the sort of topics that I like to follow. It was just talking about Clay and his start with the bear hunting magazine and and his start in the industry. And we talked a bit about traditional bow hunting. You know, he's famous for that one YouTube video where the bear like literally comes and touches his arrow Mm. of huge boar. You know, so he's close hunted bears with his longbow and um, 
so we tell those stories and then we talk about meat eater, you know, and the evolution into meat eater and what that means for him. And we just tie, yeah, we, we get into a lot of different things there in that episode. So I really like that one. Yeah. It's one of my better ones, but yeah, there's all sorts of them there. I just, variety is the spice of life. So I, yeah, I don't know that I have an absolute favor. You cover a lot of stuff. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite one? Of our podcast? Yeah, like if, if somebody's going to listen to Wet Fly Swing, which one should they listen to? Yeah, that is, it is a tough question because there's so many, especially us, because we're approaching 500 and it's like, oh my gosh, where do you start? But I, I, I think, I just think, okay, I mean, if I had so many memorable episodes, I mean, you know, <laughs> like from Henry Winkler, right? The Fonz from Happy Days. He was this yeah. movie star yeah. back in the day. You oh, know, dude, him on. the Fonz, are you kidding me? Yeah, I had the Fonz on, right? So that was a pretty epic podcast there but that was totally different then you know we've had so many like joan wolf right she's just this you know with two little girls myself and thinking joan wolf has been this bigger than life female in fly fishing right Mm -hmm. and so i think of that i think of like um i mean frank moore i had him on he's he's passed away since but i mean i i visit him at his house at the place that was burnt by the fires a few years back but he he was just, you know, a war hero, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. was literally stormed the beaches at Normandy, you know, came back and just, right? So those are the people I think I'm, you know, I've never, I think those are the stories that get me. It's even the non-fly fishing stuff. It's really just hearing those crazy stories of people that did a lot more than I've done and like celebrating them in the history, right? So I, yeah. I, I guess I, that's where I go is to those. Nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. But I don't cool, know man. if that's, I mean, like I said, I think the meat eater is interesting. And maybe I'll leave it here because I think the meat eater, I always look around, you're like, oh, you know, everybody's comparing ourselves. And I try yeah. not to do that. But yeah, human nature. Yeah, human nature. You know, meat eater for us, it's, you know, outdoor space, not a total comparison because we're flying. But really, you are in that space, you know, the hunting and totally different than meat eater. But do you look at that and see these guys, how they've created this? I don't even know how big the thing is, but it, it's gigantic. They're probably like the Joe Rogan of the outdoors. Um, do you look at them and, and think like, okay, how do I continue getting to a place where I'm growing, getting better and closer to that? Or, or what's your take there? Mm. I have a theory on podcasting and, and what is happening. And I compare it to uh, what happened with TV. So back in the 50s, every little town had a tv station and it would serve a small area and it would have all of its own local shows you know here in edmonton we had a tv station and it had you know a local kids show and a little a local talk show and you know and then slowly over time um shows you know network shows started introducing themselves into those little stations and then Pretty soon, within a few decades, all of those local shows went away and they were encompassed by networks. And I kind of see that happening with podcasting. I'm seeing networks pop up here and there. And then I've been invited to join several of them and I haven't done that yet. Um, And so I think that's what's going to happen. I think it's going to be... so. In answer to your question, that's exactly what Mediator is doing. They're acquiring assets that they think fit yep. their brand. And uh, I don't know what to think about that. Like if you listen to the show with Clay Newcomb, you can judge your own, make your own judgment yeah. on that. You know, he is a full-time employee of Mediator. And I am not sure that I would want to do that. In fact, you know, I'm being polite. I'm really sure I would not want to do that. Yeah, you won't want to do that. Yeah. So now having said that, if, you know, Steve phones me today and goes, John, we want you to be in mediator crew as a content creator. And here's a, here's a truckload of money. Right. You know, okay. 
interesting. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> what's my term? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, what's, yeah. how do you? So I don't know. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't. Number one, I'm not going to get a phone call from Steve Rennell anytime soon. But, uh, you know, you contemplate those things. Totally. Totally. Yeah. We had Joe Cermelli on from The Meat Eater. He was, had the show, The Bent Podcast. And we talked about some of these same things. I think he, you know, had a break up with them, right? And went out and did his own thing. I think probably, I'm guessing it helped him being with The Meat Eater, although he had oh, a whole sure. history of journalism and stuff before. But no, I, my take on it is, I think podcasting, the reason why it's resonating so much is that it's, it's long form, you know, they're hearing like you now, we talked to you, listen to your story for, for this today, but it's also independent, you know, I mean, that's yeah. the one cool yeah. thing. Like literally it's the one thing where it's totally independent. I mean, like our podcast, your podcast is your thing. You can do whatever you want and, and you can't do that on in a lot of places anymore. So I think that's what people love. Yeah, nobody can shut it down or take it no. away. Yeah, no. no, and there's there's a whole movement about that, right? Because people did think like Apple Podcasts was going to. They've actually been a great partner in podcasting. They, you know what I mean? Like they've no. always kept understood that independent part, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, but yeah, you, your feed is your feed. Uh, you own it. Nobody can take it away. So I think that's one of the cool things about it. I think people love that part. I know I do. I'm just going broke doing it. Is the problem? Yeah. <laughs> like. There's no monetization for me yet. And I can't, I don't have that brain because I've, I have a mindset of minimalism, I guess, right? Where I don't want right. a lot of gear and I don't want a I lot know. of, right? So That's I tough. simplify my life. And then you're asking me now to go well beyond my comfort zone and complicating right. it with how do I get paid to do this? Well, I think for you, you got to start thinking, I think outside of the gear, since the gear isn't your thing or well, having some gear, but you know, think of the other, other, whatever groups, people that could, you know, utilize your platform or, you know, what you have going to, you know, I am open to suggestions, Dave. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> well, I think what we should do, John, since we're, uh, we're well over an hour here, I think we should hold this maybe till the next one. I'm sure we're going to keep in touch. I know I would like to all, yeah. I'll send everybody out to food, podcast.com if they have questions for you. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for all the time today. I really, Appreciate what you're doing. I hope to uh, get better at the, you know, some of the stuff you do as we move forward. Yeah, thanks for all your support, Dave. I really appreciate you having me on. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.